On today's episode, we have a couple of solid crime thrillers, starting with The Departed from 2006 and Heat from 1995. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show we've got a couple of crime thrillers to talk about and i'm gonna waste no time no warm-up topic no nothing just the departed released on october 6th 2006 directed by martin scorsese who also directed raging bull which is one i definitely need to revisit i think I might have mentioned that before. He also did Taxi Driver with Robert De Niro, and that one is solid. I really like Taxi Driver. It's a very different kind of movie, honestly, so if you go into it wanting to watch it, just temper your expectations and realize that it's not your typical run-of-the-mill type movie. He also did Goodfellas with Robert De Niro, and I might mention that all of these movies I have listed with Martin Scorsese's filmography are actually movies that feature Robert De Niro. Goodfellas is a solid one. It's honestly, it's got Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci as well. And it's just a fucking quintessential gangster movie, honestly. It is a really good film and it's just got a a lot of great aspects to it. And it's a crying shame that It didn't end up winning Best Picture, but that's just a testament to how much I hate award shows and awards and things like that. They just never really seem to pick the right one that will stand the test of time as being a great movie. He also directed Casino, and that also stars Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, and it also has Sharon Stone in it. That one is basically, it's like what would happen if Goodfellas was at a Vegas casino. There's a little more to it than that. Obviously, it's not the exact same story, but it feels pretty similar. The two lead actors being the same. And honestly, it's a decent movie. I just, I don't go back and revisit it very frequently. I don't know why. For the writer, we have William Monahan. For the producers, we have Brad Pitt, Brad Gray, Gianni Nunari, and Graham King. For the score, we have composer Howard Shore. Composer Howard Shore said that Martin Scorsese wanted the music score to be a tango to portray the nature of the deadly game being played by the characters in the movie. I think he accomplished that, honestly. I think this score is pretty solid. It's pretty great. There's a lot of soundtrack type stuff, like different pop songs that appear, but it's got a good score as well. Don't forget that. He also did The Silence of the Lambs, which is an all-time great movie. It fucking won every fucking Oscar the year it came out. Like, best lead actor, best lead actress, best picture, I believe, and a bunch of others. I mean, it was, it fucking cleaned up at that year's Oscars. He also did Seven, which is a David Fincher movie, and that one is very good. I still really enjoy it. I go back to it from time to time and just rewatch it. It's got a lot of very cool scenes and moments and it's very well shot as with David Fincher movies that's going to be the case so 
He also did Dogma, which is a Kevin Smith movie that stars Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. That one is decent. It's not like an overall super great movie, but it's definitely got a lot of funny religious satire in it. He also did all of the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies, and those are some pretty fucking epic scores, honestly. I mean, I have never really gotten into those movies very much. I I own the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but I don't have the Hobbit movies. I found it particularly difficult to get into the Hobbit movies because they took a 300-page book and made it into, like, three three-hour-long movies almost, and... I just didn't feel like there was enough source material to make that happen, so they had to add a whole bunch of shit, and it just showed through. It was like, this is not as good as those Lord of the Rings movies, honestly. For the cast, we have Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays Trooper William Billy Costigan Jr. He was in What's Eating Gilbert Grape with Johnny Depp, and he plays Johnny Depp's character Gilbert Grape's mentally handicapped little brother, And he does a fucking spectacular job. It's super fucking believable. It doesn't seem like a guy is acting like that. It almost seems like a real mentally handicapped person is doing the things that are being done on screen. He was also in Titanic, which is arguably his most famous movie, despite my opinion being that it's not very good. It's just, it's overlong and... There's a lot about it that it's just kind of like, if you really examine the plot, you're like, yeah, this doesn't really have as much going for it as you'd think it would with as popular as that movie was. I mean, I remember people telling me in school when that movie was in theaters that they were going and seeing it like several times. And I was like, holy shit, really? But I do love James Cameron. He is fucking solid. He's a great director, and he's made a lot of some of my favorite films, so I can't fault him for anything. He was also in Catch Me If You Can, and that one is previously covered on this podcast. I've said all I really want to say about it. It's very solid. It's a great movie. It's very interesting to watch, and it's cool the way they do a lot of the different things in it. And then he was in The Revenant, which I need to go back and revisit this winter because it's such a winter movie to watch. I mean, it's definitely set in the winter, and it's about Leonardo DiCaprio just going, and he gets left for dead by his group. And I think they're like trappers or something like that, but they basically think Leonardo DiCaprio is going to die And they just leave him for dead. And he basically decides he's going to get revenge. So he's like trekking across this wilderness and stuff to find the guy who did it to him. And he's very fucking good in it, honestly. He won Best Actor for it. Not that that means much to me, but it's still fucking great. Then we have Matt Damon, who plays Staff Sergeant Colin Sullivan. He was also in Goodwill Hunting, also starring... Robin Williams, Ben Affleck, and Casey Affleck, among others. And that movie is fucking solid. It's got a lot of great lines and moments in it, and it's a really interesting story, and I think it's very well written. Apparently, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck wrote the script together, and it turned out very well. I think they did a great job. He was also in Saving Private Ryan, and I think I've talked about this one before, that I think it's kind of a ridiculous premise for a movie, but it's not a bad movie. It's just, I think the whole concept of why they're doing what they're doing doesn't really hold water. I don't know that to be a thing that if a mother has four boys that go off to war and three of them die, that you're going to send a bunch of men 
in to like rescue the guy and risk their own lives so that the mother doesn't have to deal with what she had to have known was a possibility. Matt Damon was also in The Martian, and that one is solid. I actually own that one, but I've only seen it once, and I need to go back and watch it again. It's a very well-made movie. It's, I believe, a Ridley Scott movie, but I'm not entirely sure. He was in the Bourne series, and those will be either previously covered on this podcast or soon to be covered on this podcast, at least the first one. I haven't looked into doing the other two or the other shit now it's three or four of those movies but i really like the first one and i think it it stands on its own as a good movie he was also in oceans 11 with a whole big ensemble cast previously covered on this podcast as well i really like oceans 11 it's a great remake and it probably really doesn't copy the original movie too much but it does to some degree then we have jack nicholson who plays Frank Costello, and he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in the 70s, and that one was solid. That's about a psych ward or a mental hospital, and he goes there, and he's clearly not the kind of guy that belongs in a mental hospital, but he kind of shakes things up there and causes trouble, and it's a very fun watch. It's got some dark moments, don't get me wrong, but it's overall good. He was in Batman from 1989, and he played the Joker, And I think his performance gets overshadowed by Heath Ledger's because Heath Ledger's performance was so good in The Dark Knight that people forget that Jack Nicholson pretty much lights up the screen in that movie. He really brings it home and does what he needs to do and acts like he needs to. He was in The Shining, and that one is a Stephen King novel that got made into a movie And that is one of the ones that Stephen King absolutely hates. He doesn't really like that adaptation of his novel. And it's just, I'm not a big Stanley Kubrick fan, so I can't fault Stephen King. I've never read the book, so I don't really know if it's particularly different. It probably is if Stephen King is saying that he didn't like it. And he was also in A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise and Demi Moore, And that one is solid. It's a great courtroom drama investigation type. And it's just a lot of great performances in that movie. It's very well done. Then we have Mark Wahlberg, who plays Staff Sergeant Sean Dignam. And he was in Boogie Nights, which is a P.T. Anderson movie with a big ensemble cast. And it's got a lot of up-and-coming stars in it. And it's very fucking good, honestly. Check that one out if you've never seen it. It's not... It's strange... P.T. Anderson doesn't do movies like a lot of people do. He doesn't have usually a very strong linear plot going on. It's usually just like you're getting a glimpse into the life of these people. You're just seeing things that happen to them. It doesn't really feel like it's this big connective plot. He was in The Fighter with Christian Bale, and I believe it was Amy Adams. And that one is solid, too. I need to go back and revisit it. I say that way too much about these movies, but... It's easier to either watch movies I've seen millions of times or watch movies that I've never seen before ever because it's harder to convince myself that I need to rewatch something that I just liked and I didn't fall head over heels for. He was also in Four Brothers, and that one's a solid movie. I don't remember much of it, but it's definitely good. It's got, I think, shit, I can't even think of who the fuck else is in that movie. Who knows? Anyway, it's a good movie. Definitely worth checking out, at least. 
Then we have Martin Sheen, who plays Captain Oliver Charlie Queenan, and he was in Apocalypse Now. Honestly, Martin Sheen is not in a ton of stuff. He was the president in West Wing. That was a TV show, but... I mean, he's really never been, like, a big lead actor, in my opinion. And he's only had, like, a handful of movies that I even remember him being in. Then we have Vera Farmiga, who I have noted here is hot. And she plays Dr. Madeline Madden. She was in Up in the Air. That's a personal favorite of mine. I've watched it several times. I really love all of the actors in that movie. And the story is Kind of an original concept, I would say. It's about this guy who I believe companies hire to come in and let people go when they need to fire them. And he does it in a way that's more succinct and doesn't beat around the bush or anything. And he just kind of explains to them what's going on. And they might get pissy, but they ultimately still go along with it. And then it doesn't fall on any of the other people at the company's hands. She was also in The Conjuring, which I remember being a pretty solid horror movie. It was pretty good. It's not one that I've seen since I saw it in theaters, I think I saw it in theaters. I don't remember. It was just a decent horror movie, and it spawned a bunch of sequels and spinoffs and things like that. Then we have Alec Baldwin, who plays Captain George Ellerby. He was in The Hunt for Red October, either previously covered on this podcast or soon to be covered on this podcast. He was in Glengarry Glen Ross, and honestly, Alec Baldwin is the thing that I remember about that movie. I can't remember much else that goes on, but at the very beginning of the movie, he kind of has this speech-slash-rant where he addresses these salesmen and basically tells them what bags of shit they are and how they suck at selling and how they need to have better mentalities and how much more successful he is than they are and things like that. And it's because he has these philosophies and it's pretty fucking cool. He was also in the TV show 30 Rock as Jack Donaghy. And that show, I fucking love it. Honestly, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's got a lot of great humor in it. And there's just a joke Every other second, it seems like. I mean, there's always something funny being said or done. It's very well written. I really like it. For casting notes, Martin Scorsese really wanted Al Pacino for the role of Costello because he'd never worked with Pacino before, but he turned it down. Jack Nicholson was Scorsese's second choice. Pacino would later go on to appear in Scorsese's The Irishman from 2019. Roughly half the $90 million budget went to the actor's salaries. Originally, this movie was planned with Brad Pitt as Colin Sullivan, which is Matt Damon's part, and Tom Cruise as Billy Costian, which is Leonardo DiCaprio's part. And I gotta say, if Tom Cruise would have been in that Leo part, I would not have been happy with that. I probably wouldn't even like this movie because... Costigan is supposed to be the one that you're, like, rooting for, I feel like. To have Tom Cruise in it, it automatically makes it not quite like I'm gonna root for that guy at all anymore. Ray Liotta was the original choice for the role of Dignum, but had to reluctantly decline due to other commitments. After completing The Aviator from 2004, 
Martin Scorsese kept Alec Baldwin in mind for future collaboration and ultimately decided to cast him in the role of Ellerby, which was offered to Mel Gibson first, but Gibson was unable to accept the part because he was starting production on Apocalypto, which came out in 2006 at the time. Leonardo DiCaprio was cast as the lead in The Good Shepherd from 2006, but he dropped out to play Billy Costigan in this movie. Matt Damon then took the role. Robert De Niro turned down the role of Queenan to appear in The Good Shepherd from 2006. Martin Scorsese had originally wanted to cast a better-known actress, either Kate Winslet, Emily Blunt, Hilary Swank, or Jennifer Aniston for the part of Dr. Madeline Madden. I don't really believe that Emily Blunt was a really big household name at that point. I don't think I had ever heard of her until much more recently than this movie. So I don't know that I would argue that he was looking for a household name. I would just say those are the actresses that he considered for the part. I don't buy that. He was like, oh, I need a big name. Let's go with 2006 Emily Blunt. For a plot synopsis, this is from IMDb. An undercover cop and a mole in the police attempt to identify each other while infiltrating an Irish gang in South Boston. Alright guys, let's just dive right into the fucking plot of this movie. So, the movie starts off by telling us we're in Boston some years ago as a flashback. Jack Nicholson as Frank Costello, which is a great gangster name by the way, is doing voiceover talking about how things were back in the day. He's talking about how things used to be with the Knights of Columbus in the old days, and we see Costello and he's collecting what is presumably protection money from a local business owner. And this is still in the past, by the way. It's still, you know that it's not present day. Frank spots a local boy named Colin Sullivan, who actually does look kind of like a young Matt Damon, but more like he would cry even harder if someone said, it's not your fault to him repeatedly. He asks if he's Johnny Sullivan's kid and wants to know how he likes living with his grandmother, so I guess we can assume his parents are dead. Costello fixes Sullivan up with a bunch of groceries and a comic book because he's clearly trying to lay the groundwork to have them be friends for later in life. And Costello tells Sullivan to come see him if he ever wants to do some real work. We get some scenes of Costello explaining to young Sullivan his views on different things, like church and some life philosophies. Then Sullivan has grown into Matt Damon and is in the police academy, training to be a Boston police officer. It's to be assumed that Sullivan is allied with the mob while he's a cop based on his interaction with Costello as a kid. We then see Leonardo DiCaprio as Billy Costigan Jr., also training in the Academy. The Boston accents might be my favorite thing about this movie, and there's a lot to love in this one. Nicholson doesn't do much of an accent, though, unfortunately. Maybe he can't really do accents. I've never seen him do an accent, so maybe that's not his thing. We get some cool scenes of Colin participating in raids as an officer interspersed with Costigan's training. The stories are pretty consistently told in parallel and show the differences between Costigan and Sullivan's lives. Sullivan goes to see Captain Charlie Queenan, played by Martin Sheen, and Staff Sergeant Sean Dignam, played by Mark Wahlberg. They run the undercover unit, and they just explain to Sullivan that he won't be working with them, and he won't be knowing about what they do at all. They're basically good cop Queenan and bad cop Dignum as a one-two punch in every scene, it seems like, that they're in. 
Dignam is this very aggressive, abrasive guy who always knows where he stands and doesn't like to take anyone's shit. He's played brilliantly by Mark Wahlberg in this film, and he's a fucking badass and protects his people even though he's also a total dick to them. As Sullivan leaves the undercover unit office, Costigan goes in and talks to Queenan and Dignam. They talk to Costigan about what it is they do and things to be aware of as an undercover cop. They ask Costigan about his background and grill him about a few details in his history. Dignam is really laying into him about who he is and things about his life and things like that. We meet Alec Baldwin's character, Captain George Ellerby. Baldwin is also terrific in this film. For someone who is not really from Boston, Baldwin delivers the accent well and commits to it hard. They're having a meeting talking about organized crime, and Sullivan is in the group. All the while, they're still grilling Costigan in the undercover office. Dignam is asking him everything, basically seeing if he can hack it, because it's a rough fucking job. Queenan is playing the sympathetic guy, as I mentioned in this scenario. Costigan tries to appeal to him, but Dignam won't let it fly. We learn that Costigan has no family in his mind, at least none that he has good relationships with, and his mother is on her deathbed. Sullivan is getting his new apartment, and it's seemingly very nice. I'd honestly like to live in an apartment like this. It's kind of, I think you'd call it a high-rise. It's pretty far off the ground, and you have a pretty great view of the city. Costigan's mother passes away, and you just see that in comparison with how well Sullivan's life is going in tandem. The undercover guys explain what they have to do for Costigan to start working for them. For the first time in the movie, we get the song, I'm Shipping Up to Boston by the Dropkick Murphys, which kicks a lot of ass, especially if you're in the mood for it. The title card hits, then we see Costigan starting to serve his time for whatever made-up crime to make him look like a criminal when he's undercover. Sullivan is still living the good life while Costigan is dealing with prison, and we keep kind of going back and forth between the two of them like we do throughout this movie. I love how Scorsese did this, basically seeing the two stories side by side and all the contrast between them. Costigan gets out of prison and goes to see his aunt, and there's a really jarring cut of the I'm shipping up to Boston song. It just suddenly stops. It's very fucking unsettling the way they do this in this movie repeatedly, and I'll mention it later when it happens. Also, how are different people pronouncing aunt? I can't get a strong vibe of a regional pronunciation or a pronunciation by other indicators, and it really perplexes me. Some people say aunt, some people say aunt, and I always have said aunt, and my parents have always said aunt, and I've never known any different until I started watching movies and seeing how different people talk. There is a guy at the aunt's house that I know from that show Grounded for Life. It's actor Kevin Corrigan, who is Costigan's cousin Sean. Costigan tries to broker a deal to get into a life of crime with Sean, using the insurance money from his mom's death to fund it. Costigan goes to a bar with Sean, and Sean tries to put in a good word with some lower-level mob enforcers about Costigan because of his family name's notoriety with them. We get this great joke about Costigan drinking a cranberry juice and getting asked if he's on his period, Costigan fights the guy who razzes him, and one of the mob guys breaks it up, but it's clear that he's just doing it because he needs some sort of proof-himself moment to get into the mob. Dignam reports out to the regular officers about what case he's working, and he has a nice back-and-forth with Ellerby before he starts. 
They talk about these microprocessors that are used for cruise missiles, and one person was found dead while dealing in them. Ellerby and Sullivan are in the room, and Sullivan is asking Dignam questions about the case. He knows the departed person that they brought up, and it's like, hey, that's the name of the movie. It's a very intense yet somehow laid-back scene, like the audience feels the tension, but the characters attending the meeting seemingly feel like this is just another meeting. Someone asks Dignam if he has people undercover investigating Costello, and he says my favorite line of the whole movie, which is, Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe fuck yourself. Sullivan goes to see a woman whose son he knew when he was younger. She initially seems like she might help, but Costello rolls by in a car, and she tells Sullivan that him and his partner can fuck themselves. It's just kind of letting you know what kind of power and influence Costello has in people's lives, and it's pretty interesting. Sullivan is in the elevator at work with the police psychiatrist Dr. Madden. The psychiatrist is the criminally underrated hottie Vera Farmiga, who can get it any day of the year if you ask me. Sullivan flirts with her and gets her number and does some sweet talking while holding up the elevator. Then these mobsters are hassling this Arab business owner where Costigan is eating. Costigan intervenes and kicks the ever-loving shit out of them to the tune of Nobody But Me by The Human Beings. It might actually be just human beings. I don't know if there's actually a the before it. Sullivan is at dinner with Dr. Madden, and they seem to be hitting it off together, and they're kind of having a little back and forth. Costigan is at the hospital for fucking up his hands while fighting. Back at the date, Sullivan is talking with Madden and scoring points left and right, and Sullivan is just so hateable to me that it kind of makes my blood boil watching him scoring points with her. I mean, like, I want to get Dr. Madden, come on. We get Costigan sitting at a bar, and Costello sits next to him. They begin chatting, and Costello takes Costigan to a back room. Costello informs Costigan of who it was that he beat up, and that because of him doing that, people want him dead. Costello says that he can stop the hit, but it's also clear that this favor will come at a price. I'm really confused by who Costigan's relative is, that everyone knows. It's like, it's gotta be his dad. Honestly, I thought it was his uncle originally, but his name is Billy Costigan Jr. So it's like, yeah, it's not that crazy to think that it would be his dad. I mean, that just kind of gives you the hint that that's who it is. Costello has his enforcer, Mr. French, fuck up Costigan's cast on his wrist from the fight. Costello then smashes his wrist with a work boot and asks him if he's still a cop and if he'll stop doing deals with his broke dick cousin. I don't really get why Costello would even bother with Costigan based on those two things. You'd think that he'd just let Costigan be and assume he's not worthy of being brought into the fold with him being a former cop and having this broke dick cousin. What does he have to go on other than his father? There will be a lot of things going on in this plot that I won't mention, but they serve the story to show how bad the people are mostly. Sullivan is investigating crimes, but we don't know if they're connected to the story. Then we see Costello feeding Sullivan info about the crimes by phone. Queen and Indignum are listening in to Costigan's interactions with Costello because he's wired, and Costello seems like a pretty bad guy if that hasn't been made clear thus far. Costigan calls Queenan and tells him no more wires because it's so risky, and I mean, I'd be like, yeah, 
fuck that shit. I'm going to pass on this. I don't need to fucking die. I gotta say, I used to not like Alec Baldwin, but I can honestly say I think he's fucking great in everything I've ever seen him in. Except for The Shadow and Prelude to a Kiss, but those were just bad movies with bad writing. He wasn't particularly bad in them, in my personal opinion. Costigan and Mr. French are shaking down another business owner about protection money. This cast is just amazing. There's so much depth. My only issue is that there's pretty much only one major female part in the whole movie, and we could stand to have more hotties like Vera Farmiga. Sullivan says he thinks that Costello has a rat in the police, which is actually him, but simply talking about it brilliantly makes it seem like it's not him. Costello tells Costigan that Costigan's dad would have killed him if he saw him there with his son. So, I'm guessing it was his dad that everyone knew him from, which tracks with him being a junior, as I mentioned. They have a man in custody at police headquarters, and Sullivan pretends to be his lawyer and goes in to get info from him. Sullivan has turned off the cameras in the interrogation room, so the suspect calls Mr. French to warn him that they are going to get raided. Then we get a lot of jump cuts between Costigan being part of a beatdown as Sullivan is talking with Dr. Madden. It's revealed that Sullivan has been having trouble performing in the bedroom, and now Costigan is talking to Dr. Madden in her office, and Costigan is trying to turn the discussion around to focus on her. She forces the discussion back to him, and he talks about things he has been witness to and how shitty his life has been. We get some very cool jump cuts between the psychiatrist's office and showing the things that Costigan has been into, It doesn't seem like Dr. Madden is loving the shit Costigan has to say. It just seemingly concerns her. Costigan meets with Queen and Indignum, and it turns out it's been a year since he started undercover. And I'll be honest, they didn't do a great job illustrating the passage of time, and them saying how long it had been felt like it was a little ham-fisted. They tell him one of the guys he beat up while working was an undercover officer, Dignam tells Costigan that him and Queenan are the only ones who know who he is and threatens to erase his file, and things get really heated. Dignam clearly talks like this to get a rise out of Costigan, but to even suggest it without being serious is a cause for concern for a guy like Costigan because it's legitimately scary to think about. They all calm down, and Costigan asks why they haven't busted Costello yet, and they say building a case takes time. This is all happening interspersed with Costigan's appointment with Dr. Madden. He talks with Dr. Madden about getting medicated, and she doesn't like the idea, but gives in and hands him a sample of some medication, and he tosses it back. He says it's not going to do anything, and she says that he has dangerous drug-seeking behavior. He leaves, and she stops him on the way out and gives him a prescription for lorazepam, and he asks her out, despite their whole interaction being aggressive and unfriendly. By the way, let me just say that a lorazepam prescription is also not going to do shit in my experience. Elderby is leading a microprocessor sting where they will await Costigan's go-ahead to make their move. Sullivan calls Costello to warn him about the sting, Queenan walks up, and it's unclear if he realizes that Sullivan is up to something. Then Sullivan texts Costello to not use phones. We find out that the police have a blind spot at the sting, since they had very little prep time to set up the cameras. 
Costello hassles the Asian guys at the sting for carrying automatic weapons because it carries a life sentence, as he says. The police figure out that all but one of the criminals has turned off their phone by now, which is Costigan. Dignam says to the guy that set up the cameras, This is unbelievable. Who put the fucking cameras up in this place? The guy says, Oh, who the fuck are you? Dignam says, I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. Wahlberg is so fucking great in this, honestly. He should have gotten an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, but they never give it to the right people, as I mentioned. The deal is going down, and Costigan feeds information to Queenan by text message. The sting is basically not successful, and Baldwin physically attacks the guy responsible for setting up the cameras. Costigan is frustrated at this point and wants Dignam to try and smoke Costello's rat out by only telling information to certain people and seeing who leaks it. Costigan is at lunch with the lovely Dr. Madden, who I don't think is a great shrink, as she seems to be doing a lot of no-nos that are obviously wrong even to someone not in that field. Sullivan is slowly seeming less appealing to Madden, it seems. Costello calls Sullivan and tells him that there's a cop in his crew, since the cops knew stuff at the sting that they shouldn't have known. Costello is tasked with getting Sullivan some info to help him find the rat. Queenan and Dignam see Costello when he finishes the call with Sullivan, and they hassle him since it's clearly a case of knowing the guy's not up to good things. Sullivan was being secretive when he was on his phone at the apartment, and he has to explain to Madden that it's super secret police business when she gets suspicious. Costigan is shaking some guy down who spills the beans that Costello may be an FBI informant, and he tries to get more info, but the guy won't give it up. In the background, we hear Baby Blue by Badfinger, and again, the song abruptly stops. Like, why did we make a clear choice to cut these songs? I couldn't really pick up on what they were going for when they did that. Costigan tells Queenan about Costello being an FBI informant, he says this is why they keep trying to make a federal case against Costello and it never comes to fruition. Costigan goes to a hideout and Mr. French tells him Costello wants his personal information. Costigan pulls a little trick with handing off the personal info so as to have it confused with another guy. Costigan leaves and goes to see Madden at her place and she's getting things ready to move in with Sullivan. Costigan and her talk for a bit, but ultimately they fuck each other because they're two beautiful people, so I'm sure it's hard to resist even though she shouldn't cheat on Sullivan even if he is a big bag of dicks. During the sex scene, we get an awful cover version of Comfortably Numb, a song that was originally recorded by Pink Floyd. I really don't care for this version of the song. It sounds like shit. Just fucking pay for the original, guys. I mean, you've got other originals in this movie. Just fucking pony up a little more dough. Ellerby is at the driving range with Sullivan, and Ellerby wants him to find the rat in the police department, and it's almost like Ellerby should do this investigation himself, since he knows he's not the rat. Costigan is tailing Costello, and it leads him to an adult film theater, where he's meeting Sullivan, so Costigan comes in and sits in the back row to kind of watch them. Costello plays this trick on Sullivan at first, where he pretends he's some kind of deranged lunatic masturbating, and then turns around and he's holding a dildo that he had to have gotten from somewhere. My question is, did he already have that dildo? Did he buy it on the way in? Did he really have to bring it in just to play a practical joke? 
Either way, I admire the forethought and commitment. They talk about getting the rat. Costello gives Sullivan the personal info on the guys from his crew, and those are the ones that Costigan pulled the old switcheroo on. Costigan is watching them while hidden in the back of the theater, and what I'm wondering is, do they even have these theaters anymore? Who would go to them when there is porn available literally everywhere? Sullivan leaves and Costigan goes after him to see who he is, but he can't get a line of sight on him. It's a very tense scene where Costigan pursues Sullivan down dark alleys and he keeps almost catching him, and a couple of times he almost gets a look at his face, but he never ultimately does. Costigan's phone goes off and calls way too much attention to him, and Sullivan all out runs where he was originally just briskly walking. Sullivan accidentally kills some random man thinking it's going to be the man tailing him coming up. He fucking stabs him up pretty good, honestly. Later on, Costello grills Costigan about this rat he thinks he has, and obviously the tension's high. There's about an hour of the movie left now, and things are really starting to get close. You can just feel it. So Costigan pleads with Costello that he's not the rat, even though he is the rat, so that also makes him a liar. It's unclear where Costello stands with whether or not he believes Costigan is the rat. You're just not privy to that information as a viewer. Dignam and Sullivan have a little run-in at the police station before Sullivan goes to see Queenan. Sullivan finds out from Queenan that the guy who was chasing him was the mystery undercover man he doesn't know the identity of. Sullivan talks to Madden about potentially moving away to get out of the trouble he's in. It's kind of weird because up until this point, I've really gotten the vibe that Sullivan thought he was invincible. Sullivan is back at police headquarters checking the social security numbers on the computer that Costello gave him. Costello tells Costigan he doesn't want him on the operation one night. Sullivan specifically looks up Costigan and he shows not found and it's not that it's not found, it's just that Sullivan doesn't actually have access to view Costigan's file and he would have to be like a Queenan or a Dignum to get in there. So Sullivan has his men follow Queenan, which my god, don't superior officers like Ellerby have any awareness of this shit going on and put a stop to it? Queenan goes to meet Costigan, and a man is tailing him, but Queenan clearly doesn't know that. We get an amazing wide shot on this rooftop where Queenan and Costigan are meeting, and we see the cityscape in the background, and it's pretty fucking cool. Sullivan alerts Costello's men that Queenan and the Rat are meeting, and they come to intervene at the building. So I missed this, or at least I didn't pick up on it, but I guess Sullivan is leading the police to believe Queenan is working with a rat. I just feel like Sullivan should not have a high enough pay grade to investigate someone who is clearly his superior. Costigan flees down the fire escape, and Queenan stays to accept his fate. The mob guys throw Queenan out of a high window, killing him. It's a very striking moment and visual as he lands right in front of Costigan as Costigan's walking out and the blood spatters on Costigan. There's a big shootout between Sullivan's officers and the mob. Sullivan shuts off his radio as the officer calls for backup, and man, I sure hope no one else was tuned into that frequency. Dignam and Ellerby question Sullivan about what he was doing there, and ultimately Dignam punches Sullivan. Dignam and Ellerby question Sullivan about what he was doing there, and ultimately Dignam punches Sullivan. Dignam is then suspended for two weeks with pay by Ellerby. 
The man from the mob who was injured reveals to Costigan that he gave Costigan the wrong address when he talked to him, but somehow Costigan still knew where to be because he's the rat. So essentially this dying man knows now that Costigan's the rat. It's not clear why the dying man didn't tell anybody in the crew. I don't know if he was supposed to be an undercover cop too, maybe. It's very unclear, but I'm just going to assume that he was also a rat police officer because it makes more sense. Because he would have said something to Costello or somebody to just let them know that Costigan was a rat in a scenario where he wasn't actually a rat police officer. Costigan crosses paths with Dr. Madden, who has been ducking his calls. We get an amazing moment where Sullivan uses dead Queenan's phone to call Costigan. They just sit in silence when Costigan picks up, and you could just cut the tension with a fucking knife during this call. Costigan hangs up, but calls back. Sullivan talks to him and tries to play the good guy, and tries to get him to come into HQ for his own protection now that Queenan's dead. And I guess I don't understand whose rank is what here, because I would think there would be some kind of process for someone to take over for Queenan. Like, has no one in the undercover unit ever been compromised before? Sullivan looks through Queenan's files and sees a note that Costello is an FBI informant, and he has this big holy shit moment for that. Sullivan calls Costello to tell him he has a tail and that they won't be very subtle from now on, and Costello demands that he call them off. So Sullivan does call them off, ultimately. Sullivan talks with Ellerby and decides to make a play to bust Costello that night. Costello and the guys, including Costigan, go to move these drugs, and the police arrive just in time. There's a huge shootout where a lot of mobsters get killed, and Mr. French accepts his fate and shoots himself. Costello calls Sullivan, and they run into each other in this abandoned building with construction equipment, and Sullivan confronts Costello about being an informant. Costello and Sullivan argue for a minute, and Sullivan ultimately kills Frank when they both draw their guns. Frank dies unceremoniously in a front-end loader bucket. I think those are called buckets. Is that accurate? Sure, we'll go with that. Finally, after they applaud Sullivan for killing Costello... He meets Costigan in person for the first time. Sullivan says he's going to find the rat with the police still. Costigan says he just wants his non-cop life back and to be done with this. Sullivan pretends he has computer problems and leaves the room. Costigan then spots the envelope he gave Frank with his personal info on Sullivan's desk, and that's a big fucking deal since Sullivan has to be the rat and the police working for the mob. Costigan flees from the station before Sullivan gets done looking him up, and that's a pretty tense moment. He goes to see Dr. Madden and gives her evidence of Sullivan being a rat, since she's the only one that he can trust, it seems. They honestly do a great job with the makeup. Sullivan still has a bruise from Dignam punching him. Madden reveals to Sullivan she is pregnant, but you know it's probably Costigan's because he did it with her and Sullivan struggled to perform with her. Madden listens to the recording of Costello and Sullivan talking while Sullivan is in the shower. It seems dangerous for her to reveal that she knows about Sullivan directly to him. Like, she starts off listening to the recording with headphones on and deliberately unplugs them so the sound will play in the speakers. Costigan makes a play for getting his identity back from Sullivan. They meet on what appears to be the same rooftop where Costigan and Queenan met before Queenan was killed. Costigan manages to get Sullivan in cuffs and beats the shit out of him before taking him away. The other cop in Sullivan's unit, played by Anthony Anderson, shows up. 
He initially tries to stop Costigan, but then kind of goes along with it. Costigan and Sullivan get on the elevator and have a little back and forth while they're waiting to get to the bottom floor. When the doors open at their floor, Costigan is promptly shot in the head by another officer in Sullivan's unit. Turns out this officer is another man Costello had on the inside, and he kills Anthony Anderson too. Sullivan promptly kills Costello's other rat officer when he gets a chance, and it feels like Sullivan is home free at this point. Sullivan gives a bullshit statement and recommends Costigan for a posthumous Medal of Merit. Madden is at Costigan's funeral and is emotional over Costigan's death, of course, and she refuses to acknowledge Sullivan when they cross paths. We see Sullivan coming home to his apartment. He walks in the door to see Dignam in shoe covers and gloves, and Dignam almost immediately shoots Sullivan and then leaves. We then see a symbolic rat hanging out on the railing of Sullivan's balcony before rolling credits. The end. Alright, so praise for this movie. The cinematography is fucking spectacular. The performances are stellar, especially Mark Wahlberg. I can't give him enough kudos for this one. The story is so compelling, and it's just so exciting, and I just feel like there's a lot to take in as you watch it, but it also isn't that difficult to follow, honestly. The intensity of the pivotal scenes in this movie really take the cake for me, though. There are a lot of moments that you just won't forget after seeing them. So for criticism, no boobs, not any that count at least. For trivia, we have Vera Farmiga met with a real LAPD psychiatrist to prepare for her role. The psychiatrist read the script and told Farmiga that Dr. Madden did pretty much everything wrong. Martin Scorsese did not realize this was a remake of a Hong Kong movie until after he had agreed to direct it. Martin Scorsese deliberately chose not to watch Infernal Affairs from 2002, which was the original movie that The Departed was based on, until after he'd completed this film. After Jack Nicholson joined the cast, his character was rewritten to give him a bigger part. Leonardo DiCaprio gained 15 pounds of muscle for his role as Billy Costigan Jr. The fuck word and its derivatives are used 238 times in this film. Love me some fuck words. Alright, so on to info and ratings. Runtime, 151 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $90 million. Opening weekend, $26.9 million. Worldwide gross, $29.5 million. IMDb rating, 8.5. Rotten Tomato critic score, 90%. Rotten Tomato audience score, 94%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. This is definitely my favorite Martin Scorsese movie, and it's definitely an all-time great crime thriller slash gangster movie, whatever you want to call it. Alright, moving on to Heat, which was released on December 15th, 1995, written, directed, and produced by Michael Mann. He also did Ali, which I really enjoy. It's the Muhammad Ali biopic. He did The Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day-Lewis, and that one is very good. It's a solid fucking movie. I haven't watched it in a long time, but I really liked it. He did Collateral, which has Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx, and gosh, I'd love to know if that movie was actually good without Tom Cruise, but I just could barely watch it with him. And then last but not least, he did Public Enemies with Johnny Depp and a couple other people. I remember that being just okay. I didn't think it was anything special at all. For the producer, we have Art Linson. For the score, we have composer Elliot Goldenthal, who I have noted here 
sucks. He did the score for Pet Cemetery from the late 80s, the original one. And that one is a decent horror movie. It's a lot of fun to make fun of, especially Fred Gwynn's character. I think his name's, is it Judd Crandall? I can't remember. I can't believe I even remembered a name for that. But he's so funny. He's got this main accent, and it's fucking hilarious, honestly. He did Demolition Man, previously covered on this podcast, and I believe I also noted in that episode that his score sucked. He did Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which are two not good movies that will be covered on this podcast if they haven't already been. Honestly, I hate his score probably more than anything else in those movies, and there is a lot to hate in those movies. And then he also did A Time to Kill. He's collaborated with Joel Schumacher a lot in his career. For the cast, we have Al Pacino, who plays Lieutenant Vincent Hanna. He was in the Godfather movies, parts one through three. And those movies, I would say the first two are amazing. Some of the best movies ever made, honestly. But the third one I could not get into. It was fucking slow as shit, and it was just not good. He was in Dog Day Afternoon, and I remember that being kind of a groundbreaking concept for a movie. It's like, I think these guys are robbing a bank and they are wanting to do it to fund a sex change operation, but I don't remember for sure. He was in Injustice for All, and that's just one I need to check out because I think that's the one where he says, this whole court is out of order or whatever. And he was in Scent of a Woman, which I did not like. I thought it was terrible. I think Chris O'Donnell's a bad actor. I thought Al Pacino did a good job in it but it also didn't save the movie, his performance. Robert De Niro plays Neil McCauley, and he was in Mean Streets, which is one that is an early Martin Scorsese movie, and it's pretty solid, if I recall correctly. I really liked it, but it's been so long since I actually watched it that I can't really remember, and I need to go back and rewatch. He was in Wag the Dog, which I definitely need to revisit. I believe it's about, like, movie producers, or, you know, it's got a movie producer in it, And it kind of shows what the movie producers actually do, because I honestly can't even remember the movie well enough to remember what that is. And then he was in Analyze This with Billy Crystal, where he's a mobster or something, and he goes to see Billy Crystal, who is a psychiatrist, and kind of has like these breakthroughs, and there's a lot of funny moments. I need to rewatch that too. Val Kilmer plays Chris Shaherlis. He was in the Top Gun movies, and those were pretty solid, honestly. Nothing to really complain about with them, other than the Tom Cruise of it all. He was in Top Secret, which is a fucking great parody movie. I really like Top Secret. I think it's very good, and I just watched it within the last couple of years for the first time all the way through, and there's so many funny fucking moments throughout it that it's just, it floors me. He was in Tombstone, which is the one where he played Doc Holliday, And it had Kurt Russell in it and I think a couple other people for sure, but I can't remember who specifically. And that one, he puts out a great performance. It's probably some of his best work. I really like Val Kilmer in that. I generally like Val Kilmer as an actor in most things. I mean, he's done some bad movies like anybody else has, but it's just he's fucking amazing typically. And he also did Batman Forever, which I mentioned is previously covered on this podcast, or soon to be covered, I don't know. I'm assuming it's going to be previously covered on this podcast. And that one, I'll let you listen to that episode, because it's a full 
single movie episode where I only talk about Batman Forever and I talk a lot about it. Then we have John Voight who plays Nate and he was in Deliverance and I only remember that movie for having a very, very notable rape scene in the woods with Burt Reynolds and John Voight getting almost raped or raped. I don't remember what happens. He was in Midnight Cowboy, which is a fucking terrible movie. It's such a fucking bore. I mean, nothing really fucking happens in the movie, and people will fucking threaten your life if you fucking say a bad word about it, it seems like. He was in Mission Impossible as Jim Phelps, and he was in that with Tom Cruise and a couple other people, including Emilio Estevez. That one, actually, I do really enjoy. I'm not going to lie. It's it's definitely my favorite of the Mission Impossible movies, and I think that probably is just a result of me not re-watching many of the Mission Impossible movies. But yeah, it's a fucking good movie. He was also in Anaconda, which is just great to watch if you want to sit and make fun of a movie and the ridiculous things that happen in it and the bad writing and just all of this stuff that we run into in these bad movies. I fucking love watching it. It's a terrible movie, though. Then we have Ashley Judd, who plays Charlene Shaherless. And she was in Double Jeopardy, which is a solid movie. I like that one. I think it's a pretty solid concept for a movie, and they do a really good job with it. She was also in Kiss the Girls, which is another thriller-type movie that is just very exciting to watch. You never really know what the fuck's going to happen. And last but not least, we have young Natalie Portman, who plays Lauren Gustafson. She was in Leon the Professional, and that movie was fucking solid. If you haven't seen that movie, just fucking do yourself a favor and watch it sometime. It's fucking great. I really enjoy it. She was in the Star Wars prequels as Padme, and I don't care for the Star Wars prequels at all. My friend Lance still really holds those movies near and dear because they were a part of his childhood, but I think him and I are only like two years apart, but I think that that gap really is enough that it was like, I wasn't quite into Star Wars enough to really be fascinated by those movies. And I was also too old and it just seemed like they weren't sticking with me like I wanted them to. For casting notes, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro were director Michael Mann's first choices for Hannah and Macaulay. John Voight initially turned down the part of Nate, telling Michael Mann that there were several other actors who could perform the part better. Mann told Voight that he wanted him for the role since he'd always wanted to work with John Voight. Keanu Reeves was originally signed to play Chris Shaherless, and Karsten Norgard was also one of Michael Mann's options, but they both lost the part when Val Kilmer was able to squeeze it into his schedule while filming Batman Forever. James Caan has been rumored to have been considered for the role of Nate. Khan lamented to Michael Mann that he did not get to star in Heat on their 1998 DVD commentary for the 1981 film Thief. Don Johnson was briefly considered for the part of Michael Chirito. He was also discussed as a possible backup for both Robert De Niro and Al Pacino if one of them turned down their parts. Mel Gibson and Harrison Ford were considered for the lead roles of Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley. Sorry, these all get broken out into different things, like Wikipedia will have a bunch of different pieces of trivia in the trivia section, and there will be notes that it's like, oh yeah, I could have grouped those together, but it's just like sometimes it's not worth doing. So for a plot synopsis, this is from IMDb. 
A group of high-end professional thieves start to feel the heat from the LAPD when they unknowingly leave a clue at their latest heist. Alright guys, let's just dive right into the plot of this movie. So, everything about this movie is epic, and I'm gonna try and keep up because life's hard sometimes, and it's really difficult to take notes while watching a movie without having to pause it repeatedly. We see Neil McCauley, played by Robert De Niro, walking around to open the movie. He walks through a hospital and has an EMT uniform on as he goes out to get in an ambulance, and it's all just very slick the way he does it. I haven't seen this in so long, and I already feel like I'm going to be lost, but it also seemed like it was a little slow the last time around, so maybe not. Val Kilmer, as Chris Shaherlis, picks up what looks to be a box that could have a bazooka or who knows what in it, but it's basically just like this rectangular-shaped box that's very long and narrow, and it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's got to be something. Do we ever find out for sure what it is? I don't remember, honestly. I don't remember seeing it spelled out. I'm assuming he uses it, like, right away, if anything. Al Pacino as Lieutenant Vincent Hanna is in bed making sweet love to some chick named Justine. We get Natalie Portman as Lauren, who is Vincent's stepdaughter. This would have been right after her breakout role in Leon the Professional. Lauren is freaking out about not being ready for her dad to pick her up. It's been made clear that her dad has demonstrated shitty behavior before and may not show and she may be heartbroken. She'll definitely be heartbroken. A guy hops into a truck with some other guy and neither of them are familiar at all as actors or as characters. There's clearly something going down as Neil, Chris, and all of these guys, including Danny Trejo, are getting into position. The semi the two guys are in rams an armored truck and it tips over. They start breaking into the truck as all the bad guys stand guard waiting for the door to be blown off. They take down the armored truck driver and we have a ticking clock as the bad guys are either waiting for something or are clocking how much time they have to get away. Like they are basically trying to determine like, okay, we have this many minutes before the cops will get here or something like that and we need to have it done in this amount of time and they probably practiced it like this. One of the bad guys shoots one of the guards and a lot of shooting starts going on which is coming from the bad guys. The police are in pursuit and the bad guys escape in Neil's ambulance and then switch cars. Then after they leave, the ambulance blows up. Nate, played by John Voight, meets with Neil to go over their criminal business. It's unclear what role Nate plays for the criminals, and I don't know that it ever really gets clear in my mind. Vincent shows up at the crime scene with the armored truck and tries to figure out what everyone knows thus far. He recognizes that sophisticated criminals carried out the heist because of how it was executed. They go through the crime scene, speculating about what might have happened, Vincent starts assigning tasks to the different detectives, hoping they can figure something out. The bad guys meet at this diner, and the guy who shot the guard gets his face slammed on the table by Neil for being a dumb shit and killing someone he didn't need to, and ultimately potentially bringing more heat down on them. Then, as they're leaving, Neil beats him down some more, and it seems like Neil is about to kill him. But the guy scurries away when they're all distracted by the cops. So, to be clear, I just realized I'm watching the director's definitive edition. So if yours is at all different, even though it has the same runtime, that's probably why. 
Chris is talking with his lady, Charlene, played by Ashley Judd, and she doesn't like the things that Chris does for a living. So they get into an argument and he storms out as a baby starts crying. Vincent finds out the explosives the bad guys used were untraceable. At home, Vincent finds out Lauren's dad never showed up and she's been very upset, but it's kind of like Lauren. When are you going to stop having faith in people? Justine, Vincent's wife, is pissed about Vincent working late and he basically says there's nothing he can do. Neil goes to a restaurant and meets a woman named Edie who is interested in him, but he doesn't like people prying into his business, so he's kind of a dick at first. They talk some after he realizes that she's someone he kinda knows and he can let his guard down a little bit. I've gotta say, I do remember this one being a little less intense throughout than a movie like The Departed. But anyway, Neil and Edie are making out on a balcony and they presumably do it. Vincent goes to a junkyard to see some man named Albert who was supposed to call him back but never did. Albert gives him the runaround but says his brother, this guy named Richard, will meet Vincent that night. Vincent is pissed and insists that Albert also be at the meeting. This dude from an episode of The X-Files, actor Tom Noonan, meets with Neil and explains to him about the next big job. William Fickner is in this movie and he plays a businessman that Nate calls. His name is Van Zant. I have no idea how to sum up what's happening, but the pieces are falling into place for another job, I think. Neil goes to see Chris and Chris is worried that Charlene will leave him. Neil asks Chris if he has anything going on the side and he says no. It's very intense, this conversation, despite it seeming like it's a normal conversation. There's this very cool shot of Neil and Chris in this room that looks out across the ocean, and it's very picturesque. Neil is arranging a deal with Van Zant and sees Charlene with a man named Alan, played by Hank Azaria, and he's leaving after they probably did some sex. Neil confronts her and tells her to give Chris one more chance and says if it doesn't work out, he will personally help her get out. Vincent goes to a nightclub for his meeting with this Richard, who I mentioned was Albert's brother. The guy who plays Richard is very familiar, so I looked him up and I figured out that he is rapper Tone Loke, and I can't say I knew what Tone Loke looked like before, so maybe that was just intuition telling me that he was a known celeb based on his energy or something. He's actually a solid actor. He really holds his own on screen, to be honest. Richard tells Vince about this Michael Chirito, who is played by Tom Sizemore, so Vince investigates. And I know what you're thinking. Brandon, I know the name Tom Sizemore, but I need a face to know who he really is. And to that I say, I'm sorry, this isn't a visual medium, but he's been in lots of stuff. Look him up on Google or IMDb. Neil is meeting someone at this abandoned drive-in, and shit seems like it's about to go down. Chris is covering him from a distance, and Neil gets double-crossed, and all hell breaks loose. It's a very intense scene with a lot of gunfire and excitement as the men trying to pull the fast one are just taken out. Neil calls Van Zant and says he will kill him for crossing him like this, and Neil doesn't seem like the type of guy that would make idle threats. I can tell you already that if I would have edited this movie, I could have seamlessly cut it down to two and a half hours max. There are just a lot of extra moments and footage that aren't necessary in my opinion, but I'm not a filmmaker. I just feel like I could cut it and it would still feel the same way and it would just reduce all of these moments that are not necessary. 
Neil calls Edie and wants to see her again. As Chris and company comes out of the restaurant, Vince and the police are doing surveillance on them. They kind of run through who all the bad guys are. We see the guy who killed the guard in the beginning named Wayne Grow with what might be a hooker. Then he kills the hooker and goes to a nightclub. What a class act. Right off the bat, the club seems a little unrealistic since they're able to talk quietly and hear each other over the music, which is not my experience with these kinds of clubs. Vincent goes to a crime scene where the hooker was found murdered. The girl's family is there, and it's very emotional, and Vince tries to console who I guess is the mom, and hopefully they're not just finding out what kind of work she was in on top of the news of her death. Justine argues with Vince afterward about knowing what he's dealing with at work. Vince gives a glimpse into the horrors of his job in an attempt to explain why he's not a big sharer. Justine is still frustrated, but it's like, you know he's a cop. You know he probably does run into a lot of unpleasant shit. Can you not wrap your head around that at all? Donald, who is played by Dennis Haysbert of Allstate Insurance and Serrano from Major League fame, is a character they're developing, but you don't really know what part he's going to play just yet. You just know it's coming. There are a lot of slow spots in this with people just chatting about bullshit, and they could have cut a lot of it out in my mind, but maybe I'm dumb. I don't know. Vince finds Lauren alone at a bus stop bench, and he takes her home. Surprisingly, there are a lot of threads in this movie for the slow pace that it has. I don't remember much of this movie from the times I've seen it before, but I hope it all pays off in some satisfying way. We see Chris breaking in somewhere, and the police are watching in a big truck. Neil is there too, it seems. One of the police makes a noise, and Neil becomes suspicious. Neil tells Chris to bail on what he's breaking into and drop everything. When Vincent and the police recognize that Chris and Neil aren't carrying anything and they're leaving, they call off the bust because breaking and entering is apparently not a big enough deal. Now that they know the heat is on, Neil and the other bad guys are planning to completely call it quits. Chris says that the bank job they've been planning is worth the risk, but Neil still wants to cut loose and probably be with Edie. And I notice the score has been very subtle to this point, Pretty well done for a composer I legitimately dislike most other scores by. Vince comes and corners Alan, who is Hank Azaria's character, and tells him that he'll take him in on charges if he doesn't help them. Vince comes and corners Alan, who is Hank Azaria's character, and tells him he'll take him in on charges if he doesn't help them. The police investigate after Neil and company meet in a remote lot. Neil watches the police from afar taking photos of them. Later, Nate tells Neil who the detectives from his pictures are. Vince comes home and Justine is being cold and distant with him, presumably still frustrated with his preoccupation with work. We get a cool shot of the city at night as Vincent flies over in a helicopter. Vincent seems consumed with this case and trying to catch the bad guys. Vincent pulls Neil over on the freeway and there's a lot of anticipation as he walks up to the car. He offers to buy Neil a cup of coffee and Neil agrees. And we have this epic scene featuring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro together for the first time on screen. You see, they were in The Godfather Part 2 together, but in about one half of that movie... Al Pacino plays Michael Corleone following the events of the first movie. In the other half, it serves as a prequel where Robert De Niro plays young Vito Corleone, 
who is Michael's father, and it shows how he came from nothing to become the godfather. So basically, the two actors don't share any scenes in that movie together at all. Full disclosure on that, Pacino's storyline is good in that movie, but De Niro steals the show and it feels a lot more satisfying by the end. Anywho, the two of them talk at the diner, and Vince tries to get Neil to stop with his criminal life. Neil says this great quote, Don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk away from in 30 seconds flat when you feel the heat around the corner. And it's like, hey, he said the name of the movie in there too. Neil explains that he does have a woman, but the discipline is to be able to just drop her like that. But in reality, he's kind of falling for Edie, so that might not be so easy. The dialogue is obviously very well written here as the two have their back and forth. It seems at the very least, by the end of it, they understand each other's position on things. Vince comes into the police station and finds out that the bad guys were able to ditch the surveillance police had on them. Van Zandt is visited by Wangro, which is the guy who killed the hooker earlier, and he's hoping to make a deal on info about Neil. The bad guys are meeting at another diner, and Neil gets a call from Danny Trejo. Trejo has police following him, and he's very anxious about it. Neil is frustrated, and Chris seems distraught about the whole thing. Neil meets with this guy, Donald, and wants him to help out, since Danny Trejo seems like he's fucked, and he's backing out of the whole thing. Donald agrees to do the work, since he hates his job a lot, and he throws his boss across the kitchen on his way out. With a little over an hour left, they start to carry out this bank job that they've been planning, and you just know that that sequence will have to be epic. Neil is running the show and keeping everyone calm, but not dawdling. The police are en route to the bank, hoping to catch them in the act. Pacino is running the show from a police standpoint. Neil is walking in plain sight, in broad daylight, carrying what appears to be the bank loot on his back, and he gets spotted, and I don't know what he really thought was going to happen realistically. Neil is getting away with Donald as his driver. Donald is killed by the police and the car screeches to a halt. Mind you, it has just been one continuous shootout since Neil originally got in the car. They're firing at each other on the city streets with tons of cars and it's all pretty sweet. Chris takes a shot to the chest and Neil goes to tend to him in the chaos. He helps him into a car while shots are still going off. There are a lot of innocent bystanders, as you might expect, and it's not ideal for the police, but they just want to get them so fucking bad that they can taste it. So Neil and Chris make a break for it in a car. Vincent manages to shoot one of the bad guys who was, I think, trying to save a child. Neil takes Chris to a doctor to get the bullet removed. The doctor is Jeremy Piven, and Neil makes Jeremy Piven give him his clean shirt because Neil's is bloodstained. The passage of time in this movie has not really been clear, but it doesn't really matter because all this shit is just going down, and it is now, and that's all you need to know. Neil goes to Danny Trejo's house since he realizes that he must have ratted them out. Trejo's wife is dead, and Trejo is dying on the floor himself. Trejo says Wangro, the creep who killed the hooker, did it in conjunction with Van Zant. Neil mercy kills Trejo to spare him an agonizingly long death. Neil leaves and calls Nate to tell him about Wangro and Van Zant, and they make plans to take them down. 
Neil comes to Van Zant's house and asks where Wayne Grow is, and then kills Van Zant very quickly. Alan and a couple others come to see Charlene, trying to find Chris. They try and convince her to fold on Chris and set him up, which she reluctantly agrees to. Vincent is grasping at straws, trying to find Neil, and he knows all about Wayne Grow. Edie has figured out that Neil robbed the bank and he wants her to flee with him, but she runs off to get away from him. She's not super pleased with him in finding out what kind of life he leads. Vincent finds Justine with another man and she seems unfazed by the whole thing. Justine sees nothing wrong and really just seems to hate Vincent a lot. Neil meets with Nate, who gives him the documents he needs to leave the country. Neil pleads with Edie to come with him and she comes. We see the plot to capture Chris unfold with Charlene waiting for him. Chris is basically shell-shocked from the gunshot wound. Charlene sees Chris and he knows to go away, but the police figure it out and move to apprehend him. But Chris has a fake ID and a new short haircut and they don't really recognize him so they let him go. I'm not sure that I'm buying that he looks so different with short hair that you couldn't even tell it was him. Like, I'm sure they actually have real mugshot photos of this guy, at the very least, and they could go on those. They have to know he's going to have a fake ID. Vince is making calls at police headquarters trying to get leads, and no one has anything to go on, it seems. So Vince is beginning to give up on the whole thing, and he rushes off in his car and winds up finding Lauren having at least attempted suicide in an overflowing bathtub. He takes her into the hospital and they try and revive her. It doesn't really look good for her initially, but she ultimately lives. I will say this movie does a great job of immersing you and sort of taking on the mind state of the characters because in all the commotion, I pretty much forgot about Lauren and it seems like Vincent also did too. Neil goes to leave town but calls Nate and finds out the whereabouts of Wayne Grow. Neil decides to go take care of Wayne Grow, which is a bad move since he could very easily get away clean if he doesn't do that. Edie sits in the car while Neil sneaks into the hotel where Wayne Grow is. As the viewer, you just know this whole thing is going to be bad news for Neil. Neil goes and sets off the fire alarm, and the cops who are watching Wayne Grow's room get up and go. Such a fucking rookie move. Vince and Justine are sitting in the hospital waiting room, realizing they really can't reconcile their relationship. Vincent elects to leave to go after Neil, and ultimately he's just showing her how married to his job he is. Neil arrives at Wangro's door in the hotel, and he manages to force his way in despite Wangro's resistance, and he kills Wangro. The officer surveilling across the hall stops Neil, but Neil gets the upper hand and subdues him, and makes a break for it. Vince arrives at the hotel and sees Edie waiting for Neil in the car, and Vince sees Neil as he's about to get in the car, but he walks away from her like he said he would. Vincent chases Neil, but he seems to have gotten away at first. Vincent grabs a shotgun and keeps going after him anyway. We get a rooftop scene where they're shooting at each other and Neil is fleeing down the airport runway. Vince goes to take a shot at Neil, but his shotgun is out of shells, so he pulls out a pistol. Vincent is still stalking, and all we hear is some light movement and the sound of jet engines in the background. And I think that's why Goldenthal's score is so good in this. It's because it's subtle and non-existent a lot, and that's when I think he's best. 
It's very tense as the two men try and spot each other, and suddenly the light from a jet landing shines on Vincent's side as Neil moves to take a shot at him. Vincent spots Neil's shadow and turns and shoots Neil multiple times before Neil can even get a shot at him. Neil whispers, I told you I was never going back, before he dies, and Vincent just stands there, and we roll credits, and that's the end of this movie. So praise for this movie. De Niro and Pacino are acting their asses off in this one, and I do want to give a special shout-out to Val Kilmer because he's also great in this movie. We get the slow burn of the plot, and seeing it all come together. The cinematography is solid. For criticism, the pacing is pretty fucking slow, especially in the first and second acts of the movie. A lot of things could be cut from this movie, in my opinion, and it's also not that exciting. I don't even think if you cut it down to a shorter runtime and tightened up the scenes, I still think that the movie is good and not great. So for trivia, rather than dubbing in the gunshots during the bank robbery shootout, Michael Mann had microphones carefully placed around the set so that the audio could be captured live. This added to the impact of the scene because it sounded like no other gunfight shown on screen. By the way, IMDB users, that last little bit was very opinion-based. I've come to terms with the fact that you might share made-up shit, but at least have the decency to present things that appear somewhat factual. In an interview with Al Pacino on the DVD Special Edition, Pacino revealed that for the scene in the restaurant between Neil and Vincent, Robert De Niro felt that the scene should not be rehearsed, so the unfamiliarity between the two characters would seem more genuine. Michael Mann agreed and shot the scene with no practice rehearsals, and I think it came out pretty fucking well. The first film to feature Robert De Niro and Al Pacino acting together, which created much hype prior to its release. They both starred in The Godfather Part 2 from 1974, but never shared the screen together, as I mentioned. When this movie was finally released, even its advertising material promoted the film as a De Niro and Pacino showdown. According to Danny Trejo, Val Kilmer, who was still filming Batman Forever at the time, told him on set that he had just refused an offer of $40 million to reprise his Batman role in another film because he did not want to waste his talent wearing a mask. Trejo was very amused by this because Kilmer's role in Heat also required him to wear a mask during the robbery scenes. But seriously, I love you, Danny Trejo, but this is a nonsense comment to make. I get your initial thought to make the comment, but he has his mask on very little in Heat and has a mask on for a majority of Batman Forever. The gun battle scene used 800 to 1,000 rounds per take. I'm assuming that's a lot, but I also don't know how long the average take would have been. Okay, so on to info and ratings. We have a runtime of 170 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $60 million. Opening weekend, $8.4 million. Worldwide gross, $187.4 million. IMDb rating, 8.3. Rotten Tomato critic score, 88%. Rotten Tomato audience score, 94%. Personal rating, 4 out of 5 stars. I just can't quite get it. I realize that there are a lot of great things on screen here, but I just can't get into it like I think a lot of people do. And it's just, to me, it's not exciting enough. It's got 
a lot of exciting moments, but it's almost three hours long and we realistically need a lot more than we got. Okay, guys. So that's our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a good time recording it and it's been a lot of fun. Obviously, as always, if you have any suggestions or requests or anything like that, I might be posting a thread or something because I feel like people don't want to reach out to me. They want to just be able to comment on a post on social media and not have to like specifically message me or something. So that's fine. I can do that. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.